Democrats say they want to speak for minorities and blue-collar workers, but their politics is driven by college-educated white elites. AOC reacts to being trolled by blowing up at the Capitol Police, and the media worry about Republicans pouncing on the economy. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Today's show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Do you like your web history being seen and sold to advertisers? No? Me neither. Get ExpressVPN right now at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Well, you're spending too much money on everything because Joe Biden is a terrible president. Well, one of the things you are spending way too much money on is your cell phone bill. This has been true for a while, not just because of inflation, but because the big guys, I'm talking Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, they charge you a lot of money for data that you are not using, which is why you should switch over to Pure Talk the way that I did and my family did. Pure Talk still gives you talk, text, plenty of data for just 30 bucks a month. No price increase there. I'm a Pure Talk customer. They are the most reliable network in America. They use the same towers as one of the big guys. The 5G coverage is great. They're a veteran-owned company with a customer service team based right here in the United States. Stop giving your money away to Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile. Switch to my guys over at Pure Talk. They make it really easy with a no-risk money-back guarantee. Head on over to puretalk.com, select a plan, enter promo code Shapiro. You can save 50% off your very first month of coverage. You can literally be switched over to Pure Talk coverage in less than 10 minutes. Head on over to puretalk.com, enter promo code Shapiro. That's puretalk.com, Promo code Shapiro. Again, when you do that, you save 50% off your very first month of coverage. There's no reason you should be paying for all the giant marketing efforts being run by all the big guys. Instead, just pay for what you need. With puretalk.com, use promo code Shapiro to get started. Well, we have some breaking news this morning. That, of course, is the death of Ivana Trump, Donald Trump's first wife and the mother of Ivanka, as well as Donald Jr. and Eric. According to the New York Times, Ivana Trump died on Thursday at her home in Manhattan. She was 73 years old. Trump announced her death in a statement on Truth Social. The New York City police were investigating whether Trump had fallen down the stairs at her townhouse on the Upper East Side, according to two law enforcement officials with knowledge of the matter. One of the officials said there was no sign of forced entry at the home. The death appeared to be accidental. A spokeswoman for the city's chief medical examiner's office said that it would investigate the death. Throughout their marriage, according to the Times, Trump commanded almost as much media attention as her husband as they helped define the 1980s as an era of gaudy excess among the elite, an image Trump used to fuel his turn as an outsized TV personality before his 2016 run for the White House. It was Miss Trump who rechristened her husband, The Donald, a moniker that became a fixture in the New York tabloid press. Miss Trump was widely popular with the press. Ivana Trump obviously brought up a pretty successful family. Her death provided an opportunity for all the trolls online to say horrible things, but that's sort of the usual way that things go now online. Bottom line is that um, we wish best wishes to the Trump family after the tragic death of Ivana. And meanwhile, Democrats are in serious political trouble. According to the New York Times, Democrats are facing deepening peril as Republicans seize on inflation fears. So always the story for the left-leaning media is that when things are going poorly for Democrats, the story isn't that things are going poorly for Democrats. It's that Republicans are seizing, they're pouncing, they're jumping. It's always this, the Republican response is always the story. It's never a Democratic failure. That is the story, according to the New York Times. Triple-digit gasoline bills, bulging hamburger prices, a Fourth of July holiday that broke the bank. Prices are rising at the fastest rate in four decades, a painful development that has given Republicans a powerful talking point just months ahead of the midterm elections. With control of Congress very much in play, Republicans are investing heavily in a blitz of campaign advertisements that portray a dark sense of economic disarray as they seek to make inflation a political albatross for President Biden and Democrats. By the way, you got to love the language of the left-wing media. It's always the same. When Republicans point out that things are going badly, it's a dark, divisive message. You remember that they said this about Donald Trump's speech at the RNC in 2016. It was dark. It was divisive. It was a dark vision. However, when Democrats routinely say that the world will end because of the overthrow of Roe versus Wade, or that we are going to be burned up by the sun because of global warming, because of Joe Manchin, that's not dark. 
That's just realistic about the prospects for humanity. The New York Times says, According to Cantor's campaign media analysis group, candidates running in House, Senate, and governor races around the country have spent $22 million airing about 130,000 local and national TV ads mentioning inflation from early April through the beginning of July, which of course makes perfect sense since the vast plurality of Americans cite inflation as their number one priority in the upcoming elections. What else are you going to run an ad on? I mean, that's what all the ads are going to be on. It's what everybody's worried about. The data released Wednesday showing that prices climbed in June by 9.1% year over year gave Republicans fresh ammunition against Biden and his party, ammunition that includes faulting Democrats for passing a nearly $2 trillion stimulus package last year and efforts to spend even more money through Build Back Better. The focus on inflation is already weighing on Biden's poll numbers. New York Times Siena College this week showed his approval at a meager 33%. 20% of voters view jobs in the economy as the most important problem facing the country. And by the way, when they say jobs in the economy, they mean inflation. Because the jobs market actually right now is really, really good. So it's not jobs and really is not even the economy so much as it is inflation and how it affects jobs in the economy. The poll showed the race for control of Congress is surprisingly tight. It is not surprisingly tight. Every single time the New York Times takes a poll in a a generic congressional race that shows it tight, Republicans end up with a blowout. Gas prices have fallen from their $5 a gallon peak. Their signs inflation might be slowing, but consumers are unlikely to feel better off anytime soon. Jason Furman, economist at Harvard University, former Obama administration economic advisor, says, quote, it's a very negative thing politically for the Democrats. My guess is that the negative views about inflation are so deeply baked in that nothing can change in the next few months to change them. And of course, that makes perfect sense because there's nothing that's changing in the status quo other than the Federal Reserve raising the interest rates. Joe Biden is still calling for more taxes and more regulation and more spending. Joe Biden is still pursuing a war in Ukraine. And nothing is actually changing on the ground. So the same people who brought you inflation are now bringing you inflation part due, the revenge. I mean, like they, they did a horrible job over the past year and a half. They're not changing course. So why would Americans actually think that something is going to change. And the problem with inflation is that a lot of inflation and and how much inflation gets baked into the cake is reliant on Americans' expectation about how much they're going to pay when they go to the grocery store. In order for prices to fall, Americans have to say, that's too much, I'm not paying for it. If Americans think that next month inflation is going to continue, they're not going to say that. They're going to say, okay, I'm going to buy right now at this price because it's going to be even more expensive two weeks from now. And that actually is a self-fulfilling prophecy because if everybody spends now, that leads to more price inflation because more dollars into an economy with less product means inflation. You can see that over the past few years, Democrats have absolutely been getting clocked. Honestly, at this point in time, you have to say that one of the most fortunate things to happen for the Republicans in sort of a broad, bizarro world logic is that Donald Trump caused them to lose both Georgia Senate seats at the beginning of 2021. Because that put Democrats in control of the Senate. And then for some reason, they they got very inflated expectations of what they could do and what they should do. And they proceeded to spend enormous amounts of money, promise their base that they were going to do these incredible world-breaking things, scare the bejesus out of everybody else, and freak out the American public to the point where they say, okay, we don't want you guys in charge anymore. If Republicans had actually been in control of the Senate, Joe Biden could blame the lack of action on Mitch McConnell. He'd actually have a foil. He doesn't have a foil right now because Mitch McConnell is not in control of the Senate. Joe Biden can't even run against Congress because he controls Congress. So it's a real problem for him. This seems to be a habit among Democratic administrations, by the way, is is creating what I would consider actual positive results because they stink so much at their job. As we'll discuss when we get to Middle East politics, that's exactly what Barack Obama did. He actually created Middle East peace by siding with the bad guys over there. Well, bizarrely enough, by Democrats winning seats in the Senate in Georgia, they've now created all of the momentum in favor of Republicans in both 2022 and 2024. According to Karl Rove, writing for the Wall Street Journal, there's some serious problems for Democrats on a longer-term scale here 
not just because of inflation and a slowing economy and because of crime or because of the border crisis. And we haven't even talked about the border crisis very much lately. We have record numbers of people arriving at the southern border and then just being let into the United States with like an IOU saying show up in six months in court. But what Democrats are beginning to experience now is not just people who are sort of shifting their minds. They're beginning to actually experience for the first time serious threat in terms of voter registration. So Democrats have an excellent get out the vote game. They have an excellent voter registration game. It's why Democrats in nearly every state in America that they have power have attempted to push something like a motor voter law. They want to register as many voters as Democrat as humanly possible when they get to, for example, the DMV. And then they want universal balloting via mail-in ballots, and they want ballot harvesting, right? The idea is if you can get a bunch of casual voters who don't pay too much attention to politics, but can be shamed by the media into voting for Democrats to vote, you do it. And so Democrats have a, in, in almost every purple state, Democrats have some sort of voter registration advantage. That's beginning to turn. If people start openly registering as Republicans, what that means is that the sort of stigma that the media have been able to attach to identifying as a Republican is going away. And if that happens, Democrats have a real problem on their hands. As Carl Rove points out, if you look at Florida in 2016, Democrats had held a registration edge of 330,000 votes of Republicans. Donald Trump still won the state. So did Senator Marco Rubio. The Democratic advantage then dwindled to 257,000 in 2018, 97,000 in 2020. Today, there are 176,000 more Republicans than Democrats registered in the state of Florida. That is the first time in Florida history the GOP has led in registrations. So if Republicans were winning in Florida, if Donald Trump was winning Florida in 2016, when Democrats had a 330,000 vote edge, there's been about a half million vote switchover to the Republicans, right? or at least Republicans have gained half a million votes in the interim between 2016 and 2022. So how, how bad do you think those elections are going to be for Democrats? Power Rove says, consider two other battlegrounds where incumbent Democratic senators could face challenges. In Arizona in 2016, the GOP registration edge stood at 148,000. It narrowed to 136,000 in 2018 and 130,000 in 2020. This year, however, the Republican margin has jumped back to 145,000. In Nevada, the GOP lagged Democrats by 88,000 registrations in 2016. Republicans cut the deficit to 75,000 in 2018. It bounced back to 87,000 in 2020. Since then, the GOP has reduced the gap to 51,351 voters. That's the smallest election year difference since 2004, which, not coincidentally, is the last time Nevada voted Republican for president. The same thing is happening in Pennsylvania. Trump carried Pennsylvania by 44,000 votes in 2016. Senator Pat Toomey won re-election by 87,000 votes, even though Democrats outnumbered Republicans by almost a million voters. 916,000 voter registration advantage on, in favor of Democrats in 2016. The Democratic advantage has now dropped all the way to 550,000. I mean, that is a shift of, again, about 400,000 votes. That is a big number. Same thing is true in places like North Carolina. Independent voters are also trending Republican at this point. So that doesn't mean that Republicans can run bad candidates and necessarily win. It's going to be a problem for them in Georgia, for example. Could be a problem depending on what happens in Pennsylvania with Mehmet Oz. But the, the bottom line here is that Democrats have moved away from the center of the country. A lot of the reason that Democrats have moved away from the center of the country, by the way, is because they literally are disconnected from the things that regular people do on a daily basis. There's a fascinating piece by Roy Teixeira, who, again, is a left-leaning political theorist. He had a theory that I've talked about extensively on the show. He called the emerging Democratic majority. And his theory, it was in the early 2000s, about 2004. He wrote, wrote a book about, with John Judas by this name. His basic theory is that as the minority population of the United States rose, Democrats would then be in an unbelievable, irrefutable position to win elections. They would be in, in an unmatchable position to win elections because minorities were voting heavily 
Democrat. The number of white voters as an overall percentage of the population was declining. Therefore, if you had a growing number of a demographic that voted Democrat and a shrinking number of a demographic number that voted Republican, you would end up with a permanent Democratic majority. Instead, as he recognized earlier this year, Roy Teixeira, that is not true anymore. Hispanics are now moving into the Republican camp. The reason for that is because the Democratic Party has now been captured by highly educated white coastal elites, particularly female elites who hail from highfalutin colleges, that, that their ideology is driven almost entirely by people with that value system. And that is a complete disconnect from the blue-collar values, the religious values, the working values of many Americans. So Roy Teixeira writes this today. Democrats are betting on a small set of issues to mitigate their losses this November. Inflation may have just hit a 40-year high with concomitant recession risk, but Democrats believe that campaigning against the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, arguing for more gun control in the wake of recent mass shootings, highlighting Trump's anti-democratic malfeasance through the January 6th hearings, can turn the tide in their favor. It's true that the polls have tightened a bit in Democrats' favor recently, though some of this could be the eagerness of motivated Democrats to be polled. And there's general agreement that Democrats' chance of holding the Senate are much better than their chances of holding the House. Now, that's obviously true. Republicans are going to take the House. The, the only reason that, that the Senate is even up for debate is because, again, Republicans have not been clear in nominating really strong candidates in places like Pennsylvania or Georgia or Arizona, where there's still an open primary going on. Recent data indicate the success for the abortion gun control January 6th strategy, to the extent it is working, is attributable to those voters for whom these issues loom large and are less likely to be influenced by current economic problems. Such voters are disproportionately likely to be college-educated whites. It is here that Democrats have been demonstrating unusual strength. Well, this is right. The Democratic Party is now run entirely by white coastal elites. In a just-released New York Times Siena poll, Democrats have a 21-point lead on the generic congressional ballot among these voters. White college Democratic support in this poll is actually higher than support among all non-white voters. Okay, that is a dramatic reversal for the Democratic Party. It used to be that college-educated voters were split kind of half-half in this country, and minority voters split heavily Democrat. Now it's precisely the opposite. So if the demographic argument still holds, which is that there are fewer white voters overall and there are more minority voters, but now the white voters are trending toward the Democrats and the minority our voters are trending toward the Republicans, that throws the whole kit and caboodle up in the air for the Democrats. The gap between the Democratic Party and the working class is growing larger every day. But here is the thing. Your gap between you know, good sleep and not sleep, that needs to narrow. And it needs to narrow dramatically. That's why you don't just need your Helix Sleep mattress. You need a sofa made by the same people. They launched a new company called Allform. They're already making the best sofas in the game. What makes an Allform sofa really great? Well, for starters, it's the easiest way you can customize a sofa using premium materials at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. You can pick your fabric, the sofa color, the color of the leg, sofa size and shape. Make sure it's perfect for you and your home. They've got armchairs and love seats all the way up to an eight-seat sectional. So there's something for everybody. Allform sofas are delivered directly to your door. They have simple, quick assembly, no tools necessary. If getting a sofa without trying it in store sounds a little risky. You don't need to worry. You get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. Allform wants to do their part and offers exclusive discounts for teachers, students, military, and first responders. Allform offers financing, flexible payment plans, and amazing sofa is never far away. They've got a forever warranty literally for all time. I have an Allform sofa in my house. My parents have one. I've got one for my sister as well. Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash Ben. That's allform.com slash Ben. Roy Teixeira says, this is remarkable and has much to do with anemic Hispanic support for Democrats who favor Democrats over Republicans by a scant three points. Remember, Barack Obama won Hispanics like two to one. Even in 2016 and 2020, Donald Trump won like 35% of Hispanics in 2020. Now it is dead even, which is insane. And again, that is because Democrats have embraced a set of values that no one who is not a 
gender theory major at Wellesley cares about. No one agrees with it. It seems bizarre to them. They've cut themselves off in this bubble where they talk to all of their friends and where you are thrown out of the bubble and treated as a leper if you don't agree with them. Says Roy Teixeira, more broadly, the lack of Democratic support among working class voters is striking. Democrats lose all working class voters by 11 points. They carry college educated by 23 points. This is not a class gap. It's a yawning chasm. It's difficult to avoid the conclusion Democrats' emphasis on social and and democracy issues, while catnip to some socially liberal educated voters leaves many working class and Hispanic voters cold. Their concerns are more mundane and more economically driven, which, by the way, is the way politics is supposed to work. You're supposed to be saying to your politicians, you're the plumber, fix the problem. You're not supposed to look to them for worldview guidance. And yet that's what Democrats do. They see in politicians godlike heroes descending from on high to bring them LGBTQ plus minus divided by its sign ampersand tilde theory. Well, that's not how most people see their politicians, particularly people who actually have to work for a living. And the reality is that the Democratic base, the people who create the ideology, most of them have never run a business. Many of them have never worked in a business. Many of them are professional pointy heads. They've either worked in academia or they've worked at a think tank or they work in politics at the behest of the taxpayer or they're working in some sort of nonprofit. The, the, The number of Democrats in elite positions shaping politics who have never held a real business job is extraordinary. There's a piece over at Daily Wire by Ben Zeisloff today saying most top Biden officials have zero years of business experience. Well, that might help shape why exactly it is that they are so out of touch on the issues that most Americans care about. If you've owned a business, if you've worked at a business, you understand that inflation is a top priority for the United States government. If you own a business or work in a business, you understand that supply chain issues are more important than Pete Buttigieg trying to induce equity via transportation policy. If you have worked at a business or you own a business, you understand that the future of your business is more important to you than Democrats' insistence that abortion policy be the number one thing that we discuss or that HHS be dramatically focused on transing the children. This is not the stuff that you're interested in, but the Biden administration is not led by those people. A report from the Committee to Unleash Prosperity recently revealed that the Biden administration is led by lawyers, academics, and community organizers. According to the conservative think tank, the top 68 individuals in the administration have spent an average of 2.4 years in the business world, 2.4 years, with only one in eight boasting extensive business experience. The median length of business experience for Biden officials is zero years, which means there was like one guy who had 20 years of experience and everybody else has zero years of actually working in the business world. The report says, surely we want our political class to have a diversity of backgrounds. We want lawyers, grassroots activists, those with political and policy experience, scientists, health experts, academics. But we also want people who have experience running large operations with hundreds and thousands of employees and who understand logistics. Biden, Harris, neither has any business experience. Neither does Janet Yellen. Marty Walsh, who's Secretary of Labor, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, no experience in the business world. The only ones who do are people like Gina Raimondo of Commerce and Ron Klain, White House Chief of Staff. They both worked in venture capital. And again, even venture capital is largely disconnected from the concerns of the average American. The Committee to Unleash Prosperity also evaluated members in the Trump administration. In addition to Trump's 45 years in business, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross had 42 years. Mnuchin had 25 years. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos spent 23 years in the arena. So when you're completely disconnected, when you, when you are all drawn from the same demographic background, and I don't mean like in terms of race, I mean in terms of the ideology you spout, you end up with this bubble that is completely disconnected from the base that you were supposed to be cultivating right here. According to Roy Teixeira, Recent data from Echelon Insights provides an interesting window on the contrast between the people who are leading the Democratic Party and the so-called Democratic base. 
Their analysis breaks down the electorate into four quadrants, conservative, populist, libertarian, and liberal, and further breaks out a strong progressive subset of liberals who are highly liberal on most issues and also happen to be very highly educated and more likely to be white. They represent about 10% of voters. They bear some similarity in size, demographics, and inclinations to the progressive activist group broken out in the more in common study. We've discussed that study on the show. A group with a lot of weight inside the Democratic Party, but amounting to a very small sliver of the electorate. The cross tabs provided by Echelon allow for a comparison of strong progressives' basic political views with those of Hispanic and working class voters. Here are some examples. Poll question. Is America the greatest country in the world or not? 66 to 28, strong progressives say America is not the greatest country in the world. 70 to 23, Hispanics say America is the greatest country in the world. Working class voters agree, 69 to 23. So precisely the reverse. Precisely, 66 to 28, strong progressives are like America sucks. And everybody in the working class like, no, America's kind of great. You think that the people who are saying America sucks are going to be able to appeal to the people who think that America's a pretty great place? How about the view that racism is built into our society, including policies and institutions, versus racism comes from individuals who hold racist views, not from our society and institutions? Strong progressives say by a margin of 94 to 6 that America is societally and systemically racist. Hispanics say that racism comes from individuals by a margin of 58 to 36. So all of your intersectional Latinx pandering is nonsense. Hispanics don't buy it. They know they can get ahead in America because America is not systemically racist. By the way, working class voters, the people who Democrats are pandering to by saying, we'll throw you a welfare check and we'll tell you that, that your economic dispossession is a result of systemic racism. Those working class voters are like, nah, we don't believe you. 57 to 33, they agree that racism comes from individuals who hold racist views. How about illegal immigration? Should the government deal with illegal immigration by making it easier to immigrate legally? Or should we increase border enforcement? Strong progressives say we should make it easier to immigrate legally. 97 to 2. Hispanics are split 44 to 47. Working class voters endorse more border security 58 to 32. Again, the gaps between the Democratic Party elite, the coastal white elite, and actual Hispanic voters is just enormous. Well, there's also a gap between you know, people who are the investment specialists and you. There are a lot of investments that very rich people can make that you actually are not allowed to make. Right? If you want to invest in a hedge fund, you actually have to have above a certain income level in the United States. And there's one asset class that very, very wealthy people have been investing in for literally centuries. That is great art. Heretofore, you've been unable to invest in the same way. But now you can with Masterworks. What should you do right now? Should you invest in like JPEGs, given the fact that the market is going down? No, you should probably invest in the things that have tried and true value, you know, hard assets that protect you from inflation and outperform the S&P 500. Masterworks helps make that happen. They've returned over 30% of their investors each year, every year, like clockwork. They've made my listeners over 300 grand. If you're a fan of this show, you know, I only talk about things that I believe in. So I am a Masterworks supporter and fan. Basically, they allow you to own a fractional share in great art. And over time, they ain't making more of it. So great art tends to get more expensive over time. With their track record, it's no wonder their waitlist has over 5,000 people on it. I've secured 75 VIP passes from their team to skip the waitlist today. To join me, simply go to masterworks.com slash Ben. That's masterworks.com slash Ben. Before deciding to invest, carefully review important disclosures at masterworks.com slash CD to get started. So, for example, polling data from Echelon Insights. On the question of transgender athletes being able to play on sports teams that match their supposed preferred sex, what do people think about this? Strong progressives say that men should be able to play on women's teams by 66 to 19. Hispanic voters say 64-22 no. Working class voters say 63-22 no. How about reallocation of money from police departments to social services? 
Strong progressives say yes, 87 to 12. Hispanic voters say they want more funding to the police, 50 to 41. Working class voters say 59 to 31. How about hard work and determination? So according to strong progressive voters, they are not a guarantee of success for most people. According to progressive voters, 88 to 12, 88 to 12, they say that most people who want to get ahead cannot get ahead because of the systemic problems with American society. Hispanic voters say that if you work hard, you're likely to get ahead 55 to 39. Working class voters, 55 to 40. So Roy Teixeira says, strong progressives clearly live in a different world than Hispanic and working class voters. In strong progressive world, views on abortion, gun control on January 6th fit neatly into an overarching set of sociocultural beliefs that are highly salient to them and increasingly drive the Democratic Party's priorities and rhetoric. Hispanic and working class voters lack this overarching set of beliefs. In fact, they don't share many of them. They're much more concerned with the basics of their material lives. Josh Krashauer notes Democrats are becoming the party of upscale voters concerned about gun control and abortion. Republicans are quietly building a multiracial coalition of working class voters with inflation as an accelerant. That is clearly right. And Democrats are about to take it directly on the chin because of all of this. And because, again, there's an elite class inside the Democratic Party that is concerned with the things that most Americans are just not concerned with. Which is why, for example, it doesn't help Democrats when billionaire Bill Gates vows to transfer $20 billion of his vast wealth to fight particular issues. So what are the issues Bill Gates is donating his vast wealth to help alleviate? He says that he's going to donate a bunch of money because of the war on Ukraine and because of abortion and because of climate change. Do any of those things rank among the top priorities for Democratic voters? Now, Bill Gates is not a Democratic politician, but he is in the halls of the Democratic elite deciding their agenda. And so he is mirroring the preferences of that small coterie of Democratic elites. Do you think that most people, like, if you're a working class voter and you see maybe the richest person on earth saying, I'm going to help the people. The way I'm going to help the people is by paying for abortions, helping to alleviate the effects of the war in Ukraine, and working on climate change. Are you more or like, less likely to feel good about Bill Gates? Right? That, that, that is not a thing that is likely to draw voters to the party of Bill Gates. Pretty unlikely. When you hear Nancy Pelosi talking about how abortion is freedom. Let's be clear on this. Half, only half of Latino Americans say that abortion should be legal, legal period, half. Okay, and, and when they say that it should be legal, they don't mean legal until point of birth. Hey, the, the fact is that if you're a first-generation Latino, by the way, a minority of first-generation Latinos believe that abortion should be legal at all. So there's a vast disconnect on abortion. So when Nancy Pelosi is spouting the San Francisco position on abortion, that's not reflect what most working class people think about abortion. Here's Nancy Pelosi yesterday. This is something that is core to who we are. It's about freedom. It's about health care. It's about respect for women. And that is something that the president is uh, wedded to. Okay, again, these, these sorts of statements are not helpful to the Democrats. Because, so all the hopes that the overthrow of Roe versus Wade was going to suddenly usher in an era of democratic dominance. Yeah, good luck to that. It's not helpful to the democratic case when the CDC run by Joe Biden, the Center for Disease Control, is according to Breitbart now promoting to youth an online chat space that discusses sex, polyamorous relationships, the occult, sex change operations, and activism, and is specifically designed to be quickly hidden while being used. And also mixes LGBT adults and children and is run in part by Planned Parenthood. The chat is called QSpace, and the platform is advertised on the CDC's LGBT Health Youth Resources page. The chat service, describing itself as a community for LGBTQ plus minus divided by sign ampersand caret command symbol teens, is available for those aged 13 to 19 and can be hidden from parents and focuses on a number of these themes, including conversations on drag culture 101, sex and relationships, and having multiple genders intended for bi-pan youth. Is that sort of stuff the stuff that is going to drive 
blue collar and minority voters into the arms of the Democratic Party. And here's the thing. The media helped perpetuate this bubble. This is the thing. The Democrats are so reliant on the media. The Democrats are basically crystal meth. To the, the, the journalists have the crystal meth of the media. They're deeply reliant on it. They are addicted to it. It's rotting their teeth. It's really bad for them. They can't get off it. They rely on the, uh, the Democrats rely on the journalistic activists to do their dirty work for them. They get up every morning, they're having a bad day, they shoot themselves full of New York Times journalism, and then they feel high for a little while, and then it turns out that the come down on the other end is really, really bad. Because the journalists are not telling them truths they need to hear. The journalists are acting as a Praetorian guard, preventing them from hearing truths they ever need to hear. And in the meantime, by the way, the journalists are undercutting their own credibility. Fascinating poll from Pew Research this week. And here's what it finds. Journalists in the United States differ markedly from the general public in their views of both sidesism, whether journalists should always strive to give equal coverage to all sides of an issue, according to a Pew Research Center study. A little more than half of journalists surveyed, 55%, say that every side does not deserve equal coverage in the news. By contrast, 22% of Americans agree. 76% of Americans say journalists should strive to give all sides equal coverage. So a majority of journalists, journalists are out there saying, I don't want to give other sides equal coverage because after all, they're wrong. Right? That would be bad. We can't give them equal coverage. Meanwhile, the American people are like, wait, wasn't that your job? I thought that was literally your job. But the journalists are too busy defending the Democrats, which is how you end up with, for example, CNN's Don Lemon, who is saying out loud the part where he's not a journalist. He says he's a journalist. Don Lemon is not a journalist. He's in the same business I am. He's an opinion journalist, which means that he covers the news with a political perspective. The difference is I don't lie to you about it, and Don Lemon does. And so Don Lemon says, to be a journalist means that you have to evaluate the claims that you disagree with, and then you have to never give them coverage again because they're bad. Here is CNN's Don Lemon yesterday. We sit around and we talk about these things and we, we want to give this false equivalence to Democrats and Republicans. That is not where we are right now. Republicans are doing something that is very dangerous to our society. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that as Americans. We must acknowledge that as journalists. Because if we don't, we're not doing our jobs. We cannot sit here and pretend like, well, you, Republicans, it's a, cut them a break. Let's, we want to hear whatever. They have a lot to answer for in this moment. Just amazing. Just incredible. I mean, he is, because he's saying the quiet part out loud. And here's the thing. There's also a bias among journalists in favor of this position. The younger you are and the more left-leaning you are, the more you believe this. Roughly six in 10 U.S. journalists aged 18 to 29, that's 63%, say every side does not always deserve equal coverage. 37% of journalists in the age range say journalists should strive to cover all sides equally. Those numbers change noticeably for journalists 50 and older. So if you're an older generation of Democrats, then you tend to believe that journalists are supposed to, you know, journalism at, at a certain point. But if you're a younger Democrat, you don't believe that. And so you act as a Praetorian guard for the Democrats who never hear messages like, hey guys, maybe Hispanic voters don't like it when you call them Latinx. Hey guys, did, you ever, did it ever occur to you that like blue collar black workers are not particularly fond of the idea that you're telling their little boys that they're actually little girls? Instead, the journalists are focusing on activism. The most obvious trend in journalism in this direction is basically just going to random businesses and trying to cudgel them through media coverage into doing the dirty work of the left. This is how you end up with stories by people like Brian Schwartz at CNBC reporting that Republican attorneys general are hosting a private retreat for corporate donors at a swanky Palm Beach resort and then proceeding to list off all of the corporate parents, all the corporate donors, right? The lobbyists and executives like Comcast and General Motors, Johnson & Johnson. The goal of this sort of reporting is specifically to put pressure on corporations never to associate with Republicans ever. It's just journal activism. But guess what? That ain't going to do the job because increasingly, Americans don't buy it. 
And now the bubble that has been created also means the Democrats never feel the necessity to have consistency in any way. So if nobody ever asks you a tough question about your own ideology, you don't actually have to think it through. You can just do the id-driven politics where you say whatever pops into your head, whatever crazy idea pops into your head at a given moment. It also means you can be as radical as you want to be. So Elizabeth Warren rarely has to answer a tough question. And when she's asked one, she can just walk right away from it. That happened yesterday. The senator from Massachusetts, who again, I'm I'm constantly in a state of sort of bewilderment about Elizabeth Warren because I knew her a little bit when she was at Harvard Law School. She was certainly to the left when, when she was teaching at Harvard Law School. I was a student over there, but she also happened to be kind of an interesting person. Her book, The Two Income Trap, is a really fascinating look into how the, the development of women in the workplace has changed the economy and how government interventionism is not always a good thing. Now she's just a down-the-line rote Bernie Sanders left-winger. Well, she was asked yesterday about whether groups should be paying people for the location of Supreme Court justices to harass them. And she just walked away. Didn't even bother to answer the question, which is kind of amazing. Senator, an activist group is offering to pay people if they send in the locations of justices. Uh, do you think that this has gone too far at this point? Okay, um, and then she just keeps on walking. Just, just keep going. Again, consistency being the hobgoblin of both little minds and also decency. Uh, this is just not something that, um, that they are going to, they're, they're not actually going to, to be consistent in any way. Elizabeth Warren and this crew, they, they really have never had to deal with serious economic hardship. They've never run a business, but you're running a business. And that's why you can't afford to lose time and money. That's why we here at Daily Wire, we've been using stamps.com since 2017, saving us time and money. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping quick, easy, and cost-effective. It saves you time, money, and stress. For more than 20 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for over a million businesses. Stamps.com gives you access to all post office and UPS shipping services you need right from your computer. And get discounts you can't find anywhere else, like 30% off USPS rates and 86% off UPS. You can streamline your shipping process with Stamps.com's easy-to-use software. All you need is your regular computer and printer, no special supplies or equipment. You're up and running in minutes, printing official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send it. So stop wasting your time and start saving money today. Use Stamps.com to mail and ship. You can sign up with promo code Shapiro for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and digital scale, no long-term commitments, no contracts. Go to Stamps.com. Click the microphone at the top of the page. Enter code Shapiro. Head on over to Stamps.com. Again, promo code for that special offer. It's a great offer, and you're going to start saving time and money today at stamps.com. All righty, so it is that time of the week when I give a shout out to a Daily Wire member. Today, it is Kevin Peach on Twitter who understands smart, stylistic choices. In the pick, Kevin and his barber are happily displaying their examples of the world's greatest beverage vessel after taking a little off the top. The caption reads, always get your haircut from someone you can trust. Hashtag leftist tears tumbler. Sound advice, my friend, when a man is shaving you with a straight edge razor, you want to make sure that he has some of your same values. Thanks for the pick and also for being a Daily Wire member. Also, hey, this weekend, it's a great time to subscribe to Daily Wire Plus. Why? Well, it's always a great time to subscribe to Daily Wire Plus because Daily Wire Plus has tons of great content for you to watch. This weekend, we've got What is a Woman, the biggest documentary in the country in 2022. We've got Terror on the Prairie, the Gina Carano Western. We've got Jordan Peterson's entire archive of content. I could not be more excited to be working with Jordan Peterson, having this huge library. I've gotten to all of his old lectures. I'm talking about his biblical lectures. I'm talking about dragons, monsters, and men. His four-part series about manliness in Western civilization. And Jordan joining Daily Wire Plus, a big move forward for us. We're constantly growing. We're constantly stretching to compete with the left on more and more battleground. It's time for you to join us. You know, all these other companies, they got billions of dollars at their disposal through public markets and through outside money. We basically run off cash flow, and that means that we need your help. We need your memberships. We can continue to provide the kind of great content you want and punch the left 
in the mouth in areas where so far the left has had cultural dominance. Become a member today at dailywireplus.com. Get 35% off your membership. Again, head on over to dailywireplus.com. You're listening to the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. So, meanwhile, it is, it is amazing to watch how the Democrats really have, many of them, have, have no standards at all with regard to what is appropriate behavior. It really is an amazing thing. So, obviously, you had Joe Biden and his team at the White House overtly saying that it was totally fine to go to Supreme Court Justice's house and protest like right outside their house, even though it was a violation of federal law. It was totally okay. And yet Karine Jean-Pierre, the wildly untalented White House press secretary, saying openly that, you know, going outside restaurants and yelling at people while they're eating their dinner, that's just free speech. And Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, mostly famous for going on a two-month paternity leave while nobody noticed, he said the exact same thing. And we've been told by pretty much all of the bright Democratic thinkers that Protest is just protest, and you should all toughen up. You should all just get thicker skin. Well, you know, all right. But if we're going to hold you to that standard, we're going to hold you to that standard. So here's the thing. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, the irrepressibly moronic congresswoman from Brooklyn, she tweeted December 2nd, 2020, quote, The whole point of protesting is to make people uncomfortable. Activists take that discomfort with the status quo and advocate for concrete policy changes. Popular support often starts small and grows. To folks who complain, protest demands make others uncomfortable. That's the point. Ah, protest, it's great. It makes people uncomfortable. Okay, just about a week ago, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who again has fewer brain cells to rub together than most sea creatures, she tweeted out after there were a bunch of people who basically protested outside of Brett Kavanaugh's steakhouse dinner with his family and he had to leave through the back door. She tweeted out, quote, poor guy. He left before his souffle because he decided half the country should risk death if they have an ectopic pregnancy within the wrong state lines. It's all very unfair to him. The least they could do is let him eat cake. And so, like, why should he be offended that people are ruining his dinner? After all, you don't have a right to eat dinner. And, and after all, he wants, to, he wants to make people go through with ectopic pregnancy. By the way, it's just a lie. Okay? That there is not a state in America where it is illegal to remove an ectopic pregnancy. It does not exist. It is a threat to the life of the mother. But put all of the abortion policy there aside, the bottom line to AOC is protest is good when I do it, but it's very bad when people do it to me. When people troll me, it is legitimately the end of the world, and I am so scared, I'm going to freak out. And we're not just talking about, like, January 6th, when there's video of AOC talking about how she was in tremendous fear for her life, and she was afraid she was going to die. And I was in Katie Porter's office, and they asked Katie Porter about it, and Katie Porter's like, yeah, we were, like, in the other office building. It was fine. And I had to get one of my staffers had to give AOC her shoes. Right? Like, put all of that aside. I'm not talking about, like, January 6th, there was actual danger involved, although not in the Longwell office building where, where AOC was. But there was in the Capitol complex. Now AOC is suggesting that she was deeply threatened, that it was really, really scary when a troll decided to talk about her booty to her on the steps of the Capitol building. Now, that's ugly behavior. That's bad behavior. That's harassment. It's bad. And I can say that because I think it's bad across the board. I think it's bad when you protest at steakhouses and go outside Supreme Court justices' houses. I think it's bad when you try to track down Supreme Court justices, you know, after somebody tries to murder them in their house. Like, I, th I think there's there are a lot of things that are bad in this realm. But if you are AOC and you think protest is good, except when somebody says a mean thing to you and you get the feels, well, then I have less sympathy for you. One rule for all of it. I'm perfectly on AOC's side when she says she is offended by this trollery. Fair enough. But you can't be offended by this trollery and then be like, yeah, but if they do it to people I don't like, then it's totally fine. So here's what happened. AOC, the so fresh, so face, freshness of face that just could not be outfreshed in its faceness. AOC was walking up the Capitol steps when a professional troll named Alex Stein decided to talk to her about her booty. Here's what it sounded like. 
AOC, my favorite big booty Latina. I love you, AOC. You're my favorite. She wants to kill babies, but she's still beautiful. You look very beautiful in that dress. You look very sexy. Look at that booty on AOC. That's my favorite big booty Latina. I love it. My favorite AOC. Nice to meet you, AOC. Look how sexy she looks in that dress. Woo, I love it, AOC. Hot, hot, hot like a tamale. Okay, so, you know, not something I'd want anybody saying to my wife. Not, not something that I think is appropriate for public discourse. You know, actual catcalling. I know that AOC can't tell the difference. Like, I one time offered to debate AOC, and she literally accused me of catcalling on Twitter. That right there is catcalling. Okay, if you want, like, a definition of cat, that's the one. I know AOC doesn't understand what words mean and that words have meanings. That's the catcalling, AOC. So, but according to AOC, you have to follow the logic because she's so incredibly dumb. According to the logic, here's AOC's logic. If I offer to debate AOC, that's catcalling. If this guy catcalls her, that's a violent threat. And if somebody is outside a Supreme Court justice's house shouting at them like a week after somebody tries to murder them, that's not a violent threat. That's legitimate protest. You follow this, this circle of the logic? And so... Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez then um, decided that the fundamental problem here is the Capitol Police, that the Capitol Police did not protect her from a man shouting about her big booty. Um, here is Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez on Instagram really going for it. I think the thing that was so crazy about that incident is not even that it happened, but that it happened on the Capitol steps right in front of a Capitol Police officer. And this dude was engaged, like this wasn't about a political opinion or protest or anything like that. He was engaged in very clearly sexually threatening, aggressive behavior right in front, on the Capitol steps in front of an officer. And he wasn't even asked to take a step back. Like this officer was just cool with it. And it just like, I really just can't help but think about all of that footage and evidence that we saw the day of, of all these Capitol Police officers helping and being sympathetic to the insurrectionists on January 6th. And everyone just decided it was too politically difficult to deal with. So they all just brushed it under the rug. And to this day, there has never been an investigation into that, never. So as a result, we have no idea which officers are safe to be around. We have no idea if, if any of those officers and the ones holding massive weapons were, were, with, were with that crowd or if they weren't. Okay, just to get this straight, she's now saying that the Capitol Police are bad guys on January 6th because a man cat called her. By the way, if you watch the tape, she actually comes back down the steps to approach him and say something, then she goes back up the steps. Right? This does not excuse the lewd, lascivious stupidity of this troll who is a troll. But I, I'm unaware of the evidence from the video that he was physically threatening to her. There's a difference between being lewd and gross and violative and being physically threatening. I mean, th those differences do exist. So what exactly is the Capitol Police officer supposed to do? Go, go like, beat the guy up? Like, go tackle him? Go arrest him? Because what he did is not technically illegal. It's, it's yucky and bad. Many things in American society are yucky and bad. It's not technically illegal to catcall AOC, which is what this guy actually did, even though AOC doesn't apparently know what a catcall is. And I love that she's now turned on the Capitol Police. Remember when the Capitol Police were our, great, our nation's greatest heroes? Well, now they are back to being the people that people like AOC hate because apparently they don't want to protect what she said was women and LGBT people. This is what she says. It's not a place designed to protect women. 
Uh, again, you seem to be here and healthy and, and doing quite well, AOC. It's not a design, a place designed to protect LGBT people. I, what does that have to do with anything? I, I do love that the new democratic formulation of every issue, every single issue is, and LGBT people, and LGBTQ plus minus divided by sign ampersand, tilde, hashtag, emoji, smiley, crying face people. Like uh, it, every single issue, it's amazing. It's like housing crisis in Miami. Clearly, this affects most LGBTQ plus minus divided by sign people. My God, there's there's lead in the pipes in Flint, in Flint, Michigan. That, that clearly is going to affect trans youth. Like it's, it's my favorite one that they do is abortion. Abortion is clearly going to most affect LGBT people. You're like, wait, hold up. You're going to have to explain that one biologically to me. You're going to have to explain how abortion is chiefly affecting the LG community. Like that, that really, like you're going to have to explain how abortion among lesbians is really like the biggest issue right here. Like the accidental pregnancy among lesbians is just an extraordinarily high rate. But this is the thing that they have fixed it. So you wonder why the disconnect between the Democratic Party and the rest of everybody else? Because for the Democratic Party, AOC is the ideal minority voter. AOC is who they say. When, when Democrats think of minority voter, they think of AOC representing Hispanics. She does not represent the broad, vast swath of Hispanics in the United States. Not even close. They don't vote anything like her. She's in a district in Brooklyn. She won 16,000 votes in a primary. Nope. Okay, when, when Democrats think, like, who, who is the stand-in for the opinion of black Americans? They think, well, you know, maybe like Ayanna Presley. Ayanna, Pre Ayanna Presley is not representative of the average black voter in the United States. When they think of the blue-collar worker, they're thinking of, of like Joe Biden. Joe Biden has not worked a blue-collar day in his life. He just describes himself as blue-collar because he is from a state where there are many blue-collar workers. Well, I mean, by that measure, I mine for gold routinely because I'm from California. That's not the way that works. Joe Biden ain't blue-collar. Joe Biden hasn't spent one day working with his hands. I'm not a gold miner, even though I'm from California. There used to be a lot of gold miners in California, but I'm not, I'm not one of them. It, it is amazing. How the, the disconnect is just apparent from every single thing that they do. And Alexander Ocasio-Cortez ripping on the Capitol Police because a man cat called her is pretty astonishing stuff. Again, guy's a troll. Guy's a, a fully in sympathy with AOC objecting to his, uh, to his language and behavior here. But... The notion that she is a grand victim of American racism, sexism, anti-LGBT sentiment. I wasn't aware she was any of those things at the end there. That, that's, that's a pretty amazing, amazing thing. All righty. We'll be back here later today with additional content. In the meantime, go check out The Michael Knowles Show. That is available right now. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Help spread the word about The Ben Shapiro Show by giving us a five-star review and sharing the show with a friend. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out some of our other Daily Wire shows. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Bradford Carrington, executive producer Jeremy Boring, supervising producer Mathis Glover, production manager Pavel Wydowski, associate producer Savannah Dominguez-Morris, editor Adam Saievitz, audio mixer Mike Coromina, hair and makeup artist and wardrobe Fabiola Cristina, Production coordinator, Jessica Kranz. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. A new report shows that most of Joe Biden's top officials have zero years of business experience. Donald Trump makes a decision about 2024. And a major new development comes out in the politically charged rape case of a 10-year-old girl. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show. Hey, 